All right, uh, our text this morning will be the little book of Jude, second to the last book in the New Testament, uh, just a one-chapter letter. I invite you to join me there if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. Uh, National Treasure is a favorite for our family. There we go. Uh, this is... Uh, Quite a story, right, about a great treasure that was collected down through the, the centuries by pharaohs and emperors, and uh, the treasure was thought to be too great for any one person to possess. Uh, while the Revolutionary War was raging, the treasure was smuggled out of Europe to America and carefully hidden. Uh, Its location was known only to a select few of the founding fathers like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and Paul Revere. Uh, They were sworn to secrecy. Uh, Charles Carroll was the last uh, surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence. And in 1832, as he was dying, he traveled to the White House to convey his secret, uh, the secret of the treasure's whereabouts, to the President of the United States. As it happened, the President was not at the White House that night, and so with uh, his death imminent, uh, Charles Carroll had no choice but to entrust his closely guarded secret to his stable boy, Thomas Gates. And that secret of the treasurer's location was then passed on in the Gates family for several generations. No spoiler alerts here this morning, okay? This is the context. The the remaining clues became sort of the Gates family uh, trust. Uh, While perhaps not a multi-million dollar treasure, we all know what it is to be entrusted with something, right? Maybe the first time when your parents uh, hand you the keys to the car, right? Comes with a great deal of responsibility, of course. Maybe it was grandma's famous recipe that has now been conveyed to you. Uh, Perhaps, uh, as I remember well, uh, having one of my good friends hand me a ring for safekeeping until the wedding the next day, right? I was to to have that with me on the platform to to give to him in the midst of that ceremony, and so I had to think, well, how do I safeguard this, this ring, right? Maybe some of you have been in a position to be made an executor of a trust, where you now take on certain responsibilities uh, in someone else's stead. Uh, Jude uses this very language here in his little letter uh, to remind us as the church that we have collectively been given a sacred trust, worth more, by the way, than any national treasure. (laughs) So uh, this, is, this is the focus of Jude's little letter. Uh, before we step into it, I want to just pause for a moment to think about what Jude tells us about Jesus. Uh, we are having a bit of an unusual Advent series because we're working through our Route 66 study, uh, looking at all 66 books of the Bible in a 52-week calendar year. 
And so Advent's just rolled into uh, that study. Uh, But I did want to just pause and think about what Jude tells us about Jesus. Uh, One of his... Uh, Really, his primary designation for Jesus here, his primary title for Jesus is that of Lord. Uh, Multiple times in this brief letter, at least five times, uh, overt references to Jesus as Lord. And of course, he identifies himself in verse 1 as the servant, or literally, the slave of Jesus. So Jude conveys this very strong, authoritative view of Jesus. Matter of fact, there's one additional word in there, the word sovereign. Most translations bring it across as Lord and sovereign, which is obviously a term of royalty, right? Somebody who has absolute power and authority. Uh, So so this is, is, is part of what Jude is communicating to us about Jesus. And, and I think it's communicated, um, Really, even in the angel's message on that first Christmas, uh, certainly Jesus' first coming was shrouded in humility, born of a teenage mother, thought to be an illegitimate child, shrouded in shame, born in a stable, placed in a feed trough. The angels told the shepherds, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. So obviously Jesus would... uh, would, would go on to die on a cruel Roman cross for the sins of the world. He truly was uh, the Savior of the world. But the angels went on to tell the shepherds, not only is he a Savior that has been born to you, he is the Messiah, the Lord. <laughs> Even there at the pronouncement of Jesus in the hills of Bethlehem, the angels said, this is the Lord, this is the Master. He didn't look like it, (laughs) Uh, certainly that first Christmas, but the king had arrived, make no mistake. And uh, certainly we see that even more fully in Jesus' second coming, where he fully uh, embraces that role as king and lord. But Jude reminds us of this aspect of Jesus' identity. Yes, a little baby. Yes, a Savior, but also a Sovereign and a Lord and Master. Well, what do we know about Jude in this little book? Again, the letter was written by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Jude or Judah or Judas, uh, all derivations of the same name. It was a very common name. In Israel, perhaps the most famous is Judas Iscariot, right, who betrayed Jesus. Um, But this Jude, the writer of this letter, identifies himself as the brother of James. Uh, If we were to look in a couple different places in the Gospels, Matthew 13 being one, we would see that Jesus had a number of brothers. we know that Jesus was born uh, through a, a virgin birth. Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. But Joseph and Mary then went on to have uh, additional children. Uh, we would call them half-brothers, right? Half-siblings. 
And so uh, this Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, and he identifies himself as the brother of James. Uh, another one of those brothers, James, would be the, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a very famous James. So Jude can just simply say, I'm the brother of James. And everyone in the church knew exactly who he was talking about. Uh, in humility, he identifies himself not as the, ha- the half-brother of Jesus, but as the servant of Jesus. Uh, Jude addressed his readers uh, in terms of their theological identity rather than their geographical location. So notice this really rich description uh, that John gives of his readers. Uh, He says in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So the emphasis here for Jude is not on what these people had done, but on what God had done. And I think there's very likely a reference here to the work of the triune Godhead and certainly a sense of sort of past, present, and future. Uh, the, the, the Spirit drew us in the past. The Father loves us in the present. And we are kept and preserved until the future return of Christ the Son. And so this rich identity as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, God has done a great work in redeeming them. Uh, and then in addition to sort of this threefold identity, there's also a threefold blessing, uh, mercy, peace, and love. Jude makes it clear that, the, that God's way is the way of blessing and joy. And so this is his, his introduction. Uh, Jude writes to address false teaching that threatens to distort the gospel. Uh, so we actually get a sense here that Jude had something else in mind that he wanted to write to them about, but he hit the brakes uh, when he heard about some of the things that were going on and some of the false teaching that was beginning to proliferate, and he changed gears and wrote to confront this false teaching. I hope we're getting a sense of how important sound teaching is. Right? We saw it in Second Peter, uh, we saw it in uh, well, a number of the letters of, of Paul and John and, and James, um, this really strong concern for sound teaching. Uh, theology, doctrine is not irrelevant, boring, it's how we think informs how we live. Our, our, our thinking rightly and having correct doctrine is critical in the life of a church. So uh, Jude certainly exemplifies that again. Uh, We see a sense of urgency about correct doctrine. Uh, Some have suggested that Jude is the most neglected book in the New Testament. And they they might be right. right? This could have to do with its brevity, only 25 verses. You kind of flip right past it unless you're really looking carefully. Uh, It could have to do with the obscurity of its author. Uh, How many would have been able to identify or give me a little description, a biography of Jude uh, without uh, maybe being prepped this morning? 
Uh, Jude also includes some questionable sources. He actually quotes out of a couple of the apocryphal books, uh, which are books that we do not recognize as being inspired scripture. And then, of course, there's just the, the, the fact that Jude is a bit, oh, we might describe him as a bit negative. There's a, there's a heaviness to the letter uh, that, you know, maybe in some ways strikes people as a bit intolerant or a bit judgmental, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is maybe not a fashionable book to consider in our day. But, uh, but a, a critical message, and I'm going to suggest to you a really timely message for the church in our day. So uh, really uh, excited to be able to convey the truth of this letter to Christ's church here this morning. So the, the call, verses 3 and 4 are really key here, really giving us the, the crux of the letter. I mean, Jude really lays out his purpose statement here in verses 3 and 4. I'm going to summarize it like this. Strive to safeguard the gospel. So if we kind of boil this whole 25-verse letter down, <laughs> I think this is really the heart of the message, the heart of Jude's challenge to the church. Strive to safeguard the gospel. And I want to just sort of unpack this for a few moments, just kind of mull it over here before we kind of move on to the rest of the letter. So let's look in uh, verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So again, just want to sort of think about these couple verses here and, and, and unpack some of the key concepts. We must contend. We must contend We get our word agonize from this Greek term. It conveys effort and struggle. I use the word here strive, you know, strain. Um, It was used primarily in the context of athletic competition and hand-to-hand combat. So I'm picturing, you know, these wrestlers, you know, one of them's got the finger up the nose and the veins are bulging and the muscles are strained and they're exhausted, right? But trying to prevail in this, in this wrestling match. Uh, this is the kind of effort that Jude is calling us to. Um, salvation is a free gift offered by God's grace, but we are called into a great spiritual warfare that will require us to do hard, difficult, strenuous things. This idea of contending, striving. Uh, We must contend for the faith, quote-unquote, right? This refers to the content of the gospel. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on humanity, uh, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is the the substance, the message of the gospel 
This is the priceless treasure that has been entrusted to us. And so I ask you uh, here as we approach our Christmas celebration, uh, have you come to recognize that treasure for what it is? Have you responded to God's great offer right, of salvation? Maybe you know the name of Jesus and you can relate the contours of the story from the Bible. Maybe you went to Sunday school as a kid, but have you ever embraced the offer of salvation, coming to a, a recognition of your sin and, and the fact that it, it, it's made you an enemy of God. You're a rebel against God in your natural condition, in my natural condition. And so, uh, boy, Jude just conveys the faith, the gospel, as the greatest of all treasures. And I commend it to you today. It's being offered to you uh, from the hand of God. Oh, we must contend, we must contend for the faith, we must contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. By the way, that's Jude's way of talking about Christians. Uh, we are the holy people that Jude is talking about. Actually, some translations say saints, which just simply means holy ones. You might not think of yourself in that regard, right? We know ourselves too well. But this is the reality. If you have come to a recognition of your sin, if you have turned to uh, Christ as your Savior, then you have been cleansed. You have been, um, uh, Christ has taken your sin uh, on, on his back as he went to the cross, right? He died in your place, and his righteousness has been imputed to your account, credited to your account, and you stand before God as a saint as one who has been made clean. It's a wonderful truth. But this is, this is Jude's way of speaking of Christians. And he's telling them, you, you must contend for the faith that's been entrusted to the saints. Interesting, isn't it? Not, not entrusted to the pastor. Not entrusted to the elders. Not entrusted to the missionaries. Obviously, those individuals play key roles in, in God's program. Elders have particular responsibilities in the context of a local church. But at some level, this is our responsibility to contend, to safeguard the, the faith, the gospel. We must contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people for or because Certain individuals have slipped in among you. This is, the, this, is, this is where Jude goes in verse 4. The reason we have to contend is because there are uh, false teachers. There are people who are trying to distort the gospel. The gospel was subject to attack. And as we consider what Jude says here, just initially about these people... We find out that they were sneaky, right? It says that they have secretly slipped in unnoticed. Some translations say they have crept in or they have wormed their way in. They didn't announce their presence. So it's a subtle, uh, it's a subtle distortion of the gospel. 
Jude also identifies them as sinful. This is probably the, the, the main characteristic of these false teachers is really their lifestyle. They are sinful. They are ungodly. Again, we're in verse 4 here. They are ungodly people, or some translations simply say godless. They uh, are living as if God didn't exist. They are living without any regard for God. Uh, they have presumed upon God's grace. Verse 4 says they have perverted the grace of our God into a license for immorality. So they've twisted God's grace. Instead of being inspired by God's grace to live a holy life, to serve Christ, to live with a heart of gratitude and joy that I've been set free from sin, instead of, instead of responding to grace properly, they have used grace as an excuse to sin. particular word license, the NIV translates as license here, describes behavior that is completely lacking in moral restraint. Most often in the scriptures, describing sexual immorality. Jude also says that they deny Jesus Christ as sovereign and Lord. In some sense, they had come to recognize Jesus as Savior. They, they wanted their sins to be forgiven but they had not recognized him as king. That word sovereign is a great word. We, we actually get our English word despot, uh, D-E-S-P-O-T, from that word. Like a, an absolute ruler with unlimited authority. Uh, this is the, the idea here. And Jude is saying these people have been unwilling to bow the knee and recognize Jesus as their master. So th- th- this is the characteristics of, of these individuals. Um, and Jude is quick to say they will not succeed. <laughs> he says here, their condemnation has been written about long ago. They will not get away with it. They might seem to be getting away with it, but they will not get away with it. God will not overlook those who pervert his gospel. So again, the main characteristic of these false teachers here is that they refuse to live according to God's laws and standards. They taught that you could embrace Jesus as Savior without submitting to him as Lord. You can receive his grace and mercy without changing your lifestyle. And that is a terrible distortion of the gospel. Jude conveys a timeless message that is desperately needed in our day. We live in a sentimental culture of nominal Christianity, meaning in name only. Right? Many want to call themselves Christians, but far fewer actually want to follow Christ and submit to his authority in their lives. And so Jude confronts this. This way of thinking in the church says that's not okay. <laughs> that's a distortion of the gospel. And those who embrace a godless lifestyle will come under God's judgment. Make no mistake about it. So that's the call. That's the, the charge that is extended to the church. And then the context, uh, he goes on to describe more about these false teachers and 
Uh, he starts off here talking about the consequences. He's just indicated that the condemnation of these individuals was written about long ago, right? He's, he says they, they are going to experience God's judgment. And he goes on here in verses 5 through 7 uh, to point to God's ongoing commitment to bring judgment on sinful humanity. He just brings up some case studies here. The wilderness generation. Let's look here in verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So in in talking about the fate of these false teachers, he uses three examples. The wilderness generation. God delivered his people out of Egypt, right, with a strong and mighty hand. But when the people chose to live in disobedience and rebellion and unbelief, God consigned them to death in the wilderness. He did not simply overlook their sin. The unruly angels. um, these, These angels who did not, who abandoned their proper dwelling or their positions of authority. They didn't stay in their lane. Uh, It's kind of a bizarre account. Jewish history says that uh, Jude is referring to uh, Genesis chapter 6. And the the sons of God, uh, this obscure reference to angels there in Genesis 6, who uh, instead of sort of remaining in their lane, uh, were attracted to human women and married human women and had children by them. It's it's bizarre uh, account there in Genesis 6. But uh, Jude says those angels came under God's judgment. They are chained. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They engaged in sexual immorality. There's actually two words that are used here. uh, Sexual immorality which would just be a broad term, illicit sex with someone other than one's spouse, right? Just some sort of out-of-bounds uh, heterosexual perversion or distortion of God's design for sexuality. He also speaks of perversion. That's a word that's sometimes translated unnatural desire. It's a reference to homosexuality to a, a form of, 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 of sexual expression that is against the natural order. Again, these people chose to sort of go it their own way, sexually speaking, to do what they wanted to do, to refuse to stay under the constraints that God had put in place for sexuality. And the result, as we know, was horrific judgment. So Judas just saying, those who commit themselves to living an ungodly lifestyle are going to come under God's judgment. We see it again and again and again. Don't think that you're going to be immune from this. So he describes the consequences of these false teachers. 
He describes their characteristics. He describes them. Uh, Verse 8, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So he describes them in several ways, that they were superstitious. Notice that they supported their godless lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle, uh, on the basis of their dreams. They had some sort of subjective impression that somehow made them think that this was okay, that it was okay to live this way. So this was their, their, their rationalization. Their, they had this feeling, this impression, this dream. Um, we have reference here to sexual sin. The whole idea of uh, polluting their own bodies is reference to sexual sin. The fact that they rejected authority, they were rebellious, they refused to, to function under accountability or authority. And most uh, think here the singular nature of authority in the text is not referring to human authorities, but to authority, to God's authority. And then they were arrogant. Uh, They scoffed at celestial beings or angels or glorious ones. Um, the, the Jewish history indicates here that, uh, and actually we can look at a se- several passages of Scripture, Genesis, uh, Galatians 3, 19, Acts chapter 7, that indicate that when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, it was mediated by angels. That somehow angels were part of, uh, the, 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 were the messengers who somehow brought that law to Moses. And when these people decide that they're going to live however they want to live, they are rejecting uh, the law. They're rejecting the angelic beings who, who brought the law to humanity. Um, so he, these are some of the things that mark, that characterize these false teachers. Jude uh, uses a number of really colorful comparisons. There are no, there's no shortage of illustrations in Jude. Um, he says they're like Cain, right? Cain killed his brother Abel in a fit of rage. Uh, instead of following God's ways and staying within God's boundaries... Doing what God had asked Cain to do. You'll remember Cain had offered a vegetable sacrifice and God said he needed to offer a blood sacrifice. But Cain chafed under God's restrictions, under God's authority. And he chose to be driven by his passions, his jealousy, his anger. And again, this led to Cain's destruction. Uh, Jude says they're like Balaam. Um, Balaam was known for his greed and it got him into, into, into trouble, right? He, he died a bloody and violent death because of his greed. 
uh, Balak, the king of Moab, had offered Balaam great wealth if he would curse the people of Israel. And we know that God confounded that, right? God used a donkey to confront Balaam. But the rest of the story is that Balaam did try to entice the Israelites into sexual immorality to still claim his reward from Balak. <laughs> and uh, th- this, this was a, a path of self-interest and self-promotion and greed that would end in destruction. And Jude says this is, this is how it is with these false teachers. Korah. Korah was a priest and a contemporary of Moses. And Korah grew to resent Moses' leadership. Uh, Moses, God spoke through Moses. The people listened to Moses. Korah's like, what am I, chopped liver? I'm a priest. You know, I'm supposed to be a spokesman for God. I want the same standing that Moses has. He refused to submit to the authority that God had established. And we're told that the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all of his followers, right? That did not end well. So Judah's using these as comparisons. He's saying, this is, this is like what's happening with these false teachers who just are doing whatever they want to do, have, are completely disregarding God's laws and his moral standards And it is going to end poorly for them. He offers a series of caveats or warnings, cautions. Things are not what they seem with these individuals, right? Remember, they've wormed their way into the church. They have positions in the church, but uh, some of the ideas they're promoting are really dangerous. So he, again, uses just a series of of uh, images, metaphors. Uh, They're like hidden reefs that present an unseen danger to passing ships. Um, Jude uses very abbreviated terminology. You have to kind of tease out what the metaphor is a little bit. And there's a textual issue here. Some translations say blemishes. Uh, The the literal word is rocks. Um, But if you change one letter, it, it, it can come across as blemishes. And so... There's discussions about this, but the imagery seems to be that they're like rocks that are just under the surface of the water, and uh, a ship can unknowingly, uh, you know, hit those those reeves. Uh, shepherds, they're like shepherds who only feed themselves, right? Shepherds are supposed to look out for the flock, supposed to feed the flock. These shepherds are just stuffing them, stuffing their faces, right? And uh, have no concern for the flock. They're leading the flock into danger, actually. They're clouds that do not give rain. So, oh, it looks like we're going to get some rain. We need rain for the crops. And then nothing comes, right? So these, these uh, teachers are, you know, offer a lot, but they can't follow through on their promises. Their advice doesn't lead to blessing and joy. <laughs> They're like clouds that do not give rain, like trees that do not produce fruit, wild waves that leave behind a foamy mess, wandering stars that cannot be relied upon for navigation. The stars, again, we, we just like to go out and look at the stars on a clear night, but obviously in the ancient world, stars were very significant, very important. You didn't have a GPS. You didn't have uh, uh, a compass. You, if you were by sea or by land, you would take note of the stars to know where you were going, and you'd determine north, and you'd, 
uh, chart your course, and these stars were moving about, which would make navigation rather difficult, right? They couldn't be depended on to give good direction and counsel. So, uh, again, he's warning them about uh, the, the subtle uh, nature of this false teaching. And then here in the final section, he includes a challenge, some very specific um, exhortations. Uh, what would it mean to contend for the faith, right? So he's gone to great lengths to describe these opponents, these false teachers, um, but he's urged them right there at the outset in verse 3 to contend for the faith, to strive, to safeguard the gospel. Uh, what would that look like? And he gives just some very practical uh, instruction in this regard. Build yourselves up in the faith. Make sure you're grounded in God's word. Uh, verse 17. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends... By building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So you've got people that are just being driven by their emotions, by their desires, by their sort of natural instincts. But we are to be established, strongly established. This is construction terminology. We are to be established on the foundation of our faith, of God's word, of the scriptures. So build yourselves up in the faith. Cultivate a strong understanding of God's word. Have a vital uh, discipline and commitment to God's word, to studying it, not just on a Sunday morning, but uh, on your own, uh, a, daily, a daily discipline. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Ask God to help you. And I think probably the sense here is praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a similar reference in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, the believer, every believer, is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so uh, I pray in, in, in the, the power, uh, the enablement of the Spirit, that God would assist me to stand strong and firm in the faith. Uh, keep yourselves in the love of God. Interesting expression. I think he's urging them to continue to cultivate uh, an understanding of God's love for you. I think this too is meant to be a deterrent against um, an ungodly lifestyle. Like remember that God loves you. Remember that God sent his son to die for you, to free you from the bondage and the destruction of sin. And sin is destructive. It is slavery. It might have a, a moment of euphoria, a burst of pleasure, and then a lifetime of regret. You know, remember God's love for you. And he died to set you free from your sin. Now that, ought to, that ought to dissuade me. That ought to move me away from sin to a life of service in gratitude to my gracious God. So keep yourselves in the love of of God. Uh, number four, wait for Christ's coming. Again, don't live for the moment. 
but live in light of the return of Christ. That too, I think, is intended to be a motivation for us to live holy and godly lives. And finally, help one another. Look at verse 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I think it's a powerful reminder here that that, that the, the Christian life is not a solo endeavor. Uh, we've been studying Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday nights, and this is one of the things that uh, many have observed as we've moved through Bunyan's classic work. Uh, you have Christian, who's kind of the main character, the main pilgrim on the journey, but along the way there's faithful, uh, there's another, another man named hopeful, there's a man named evangelist who keeps popping up along the way, and it's interesting that Christian and faithful and hopeful all have certain blind spots, but together they're able to recognize danger, deception. Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really powerful reminder that we have a responsibility not only for ourselves to guard our own walk with Christ, but to help each other. Uh, and, and he gives three different descriptions here in 22 and 23. Like, be merc- it's, there's a progression here. Be merciful for those who doubt. Some, some are just, they're just struggling. They're, they're, they're new believers. They, they, they don't realize maybe what they're doing. Show grace and mercy. Don't jump down their throat, right? Uh, maybe you have to talk to them about some lifestyle choices that they're making or whatever it might be. But, but do so gently, right? And then there's others uh, Save others by snatching them from the fire. There's others you have to shake by the shoulders, right? And, and, and really speak, speak truth into their life. They're going down a bad path. To others show mercy mixed with fear. Like there comes a point where I might have to separate from a person here. Uh, if they're committed to a life of sin, um, I want to I show mercy, but I show mercy mixed with fear. I, I dare not get too involved in this if they're not willing to turn from their sin you know so like like come to know one another uh in in a way that you can best help them progress in their walk with christ so again just some practical challenges uh exhortations for how they can best contend for the faith and then he closes here with a great statement of confidence, a, a benediction, uh, where he acknowledges uh, God as the one who can keep, them, keep us from stumbling, right? A great exhortation. So I'm going to invite Craig to come. We're going to close in song. I invite you to stand with me. We pronounce this benediction from Jude 24 and 25. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him, who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time.